Psalm 132. This is a, a long one. Um, continuing in our, we've been going through the Songs of Ascent, and uh, I'm going to do a couple extra. They, they go, um, there's 15, they go from uh, Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, but then um, I'll continue to 135 and 136 in the later weeks, but for tonight, we're going to do Psalm 132. Uh, read along with me. The Song of Ascents. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, <clears throat> a dwelling place. For the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, this psalm encompasses... Uh, so many themes in your plan of redemption, historical acts and events, prophecy. There's great depth here, great history, many great themes of salvation and worship. Lord, help us to uh, understand, to uh, apply these words, these principles to our lives to understand what the psalmist was speaking about, what he was pointing to, what he was directing the people to in this psalm. Please guide us tonight and be glorified in through us as we um, seek to understand your word. We thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I said, this is probably um, one of the longest psalms of ascent, and uh, it covers a lot of themes. We, we can see um, primarily about David, about Zion, about um, the worship of, uh, of the people of God, of the Israelites, and uh, as we've been going through the songs of ascent, we, we see that um, they're all primarily about worship. In, in fact, most of the psalms themselves are about worship, and they cover the whole range of human emotion. Uh, as, as Charles Spurgeon has, has said, and I've often quoted, uh, uh, you know, he, he famously uh, suffered um, with depression, as many um, uh, preachers throughout church history has and have, and uh, he would often go to the Psalms for comfort, as um, many Christians have throughout the ages. And he would say, you know, I was never so low that I did not find David to be lower. And I was never so high that I did not find David to be higher. And so he could um, identify with the range of emotions. And, and uh, certainly we see that in the Song of Ascent as these Psalms were... Um, written in various occasions, but compiled together in the Psalter and, and given this um, superscription, a song of ascents for these 15 songs that they would be, or psalms, that they would be recited um, to one another or sung 
um, to one another during those, those pilgrimages, um, during the, the three feasts um, throughout the year that the Israelites were called to, uh, to gather in Jerusalem for worship. And so they would, they would, on the way throughout Israel, or if they were coming from outside of the nation, in, back into the nation, into Jerusalem, they would recite these songs, these songs along the ways. And, um, you know, uh, one, uh, one preacher, he, he has said that um, um, one of the ascents, uh, the, the main ascent from Jericho up to uh, Jerusalem, it, it's uh, roughly take you about nine hours. And he would say, he, he said that, you know, if you um, recited these, these, all the songs of ascent and took time to meditate, they would, they would in fact, co- cover that trip. Um, but of course, uh, all throughout people would come from all throughout Israel, so they wouldn't necessarily take that route, though that was a main route. But um, you know, you, you think of this was uh, the um, ancient Israelites' um, version of those uh, road trip songs. Yeah, you'd sing, you know, sing in the car or sing on the bus or whatever. That's and they had themes all about their history, about worship, and this one. Um, it's huge. It's huge because it's, it's really about um, David, about his desire, and, and the significance of David. A man after God's own heart um, and, and the covenant of God to David. A lot of times we, um, as Christians, we think of covenant in terms of mainly the new covenant in Jesus' blood and, and, and that, that covenant um, between God and man to save his people. But all throughout the Bible, there's other covenants. There's a Noahic covenant that God gives to Noah that um, he promises never to flood the earth again, that that the earth would um, maintain uh, day and night seasons, um, this natural order. And there's the covenant to Abraham, that God gives to Abraham in, in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and, and also Genesis 17, that he promises to make Abraham the, the, the father of a nation, and, and he would give him a people and a land, promises, everlasting covenant. Um, and most of the covenants are everlasting. Then there's a, a covenant with, with, um, through Moses, a Sinaitic covenant, and then a priestly covenant, uh, lesser-known covenants. And then uh, there's a covenant with David. There's a covenant with David at that, um, 2 Samuel 7, which we will look at later. But um, there's a covenant um, with David that uh, God would give him uh, an everlasting throne, an everlasting reign. We, we know, obviously, that David died. He was human. But um, this points to a greater king. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, when he writes this in his commentary on the treasury of David, he says this. He says, A joyful song indeed. Let all pilgrims to the new Jerusalem sing it often. The degrees or ascents are very visible. The theme ascends step by step from afflictions to a crown. From remember David to I will make the horn of David to bud. You can see that uh, um, that it points to to um, the true King, the one lasting King, Jesus Christ, who's who's often um, uh, seen as, or David is seen as a type of Christ, as a foreshadowing of Christ. Uh, one commentator he writes this concerning Psalm one thirty two. The theme of this royal psalm is God's covenant with the house of David, in 2 Samuel 7, to establish the dynasty for the good of the people and eventually of the world. Most of the psalm expresses confidence in these promises. The requests are for God to carry out his purpose. As a song of ascent, this psalm recalls how the dynasty of David is to ensure the stability of the realm, especially of Jerusalem. In the era in which the Psalter was edited, the inclusion of this psalm in the collection shows the editor's faith that in due course God will renew the Davidic line. We know in the history of the kings that um, you know, David was a man after God's own heart, um, but yet he sinned grievously in many ways. 
Um, and then even Solomon. Solomon had a great start. And Solomon's uh, probably the first uh, year or two of Solomon's reign, that was the golden age of Israel. Uh, that was how Israel was supposed to be if, if they followed the law. But Solomon quickly fell. And, and then after him, it, it seemed as if uh, you know, the, the kingdom split. And almost all the king, kings of Israel, the, uh, the, the ten northern tribes, were, were bad, were evil. And then the kings of Judah, it seemed uh, one good, one bad, one good, one bad, sometimes two bad, and then another good. Um, and then even the good ones failed. But yet the covenant of God to David still stands. It's an everlasting covenant that, that there would be a king who would reign in righteousness. And throughout this song, there's um, different uh, pastors, theologians take different takes and how to uh, divide it up. And sometimes it is really hard to see how uh, a psalm, especially a psalm or another passage, divides up. And we can see um, there's two parts, uh, um, distinct parts from um, verses uh, 1 to 10 and then 11 to 18. But... Um, I see this really in, in three sections. I see it in, in different, um, according to the characters. We see um, it talking about David, and then there's a sense in the people are speaking, and then um, almost as if the, the Lord is speaking towards the end. So um, I, I'm going to look at this song, this psalm in uh, three, three points. Um, and I see this in, in terms of three attitudes of worship expressed in this psalm. We see three attitudes, or rather, three characters regarding their desire for worship. So in verses 1 to 5, we see David's desire for a place of worship. And then verses uh, 6 to 10, we'll see the people's desire for a place of worship. And then verses 11 to 18, we'll see God's promise and provision for a place of worship. So verses 1 to 5, David's desire for a place of worship. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. And we see David's desire that he would find a place for the Lord. And, and there's a sense that, you know, our, our God is in the heavens. He, he does all that he pleases. He cannot be contained. Uh, and, and even David knew this. All the people knew this. The rabbis knew it. The prophets knew it. That, that God is everywhere. He cannot be contained. And, and there's almost a sense that... Um, they could pray to God anywhere. They could honor God anywhere. But God had established for the nation of Israel certain um, laws, statutes, guidelines for worship. Given, in the, the, given at Mount Sinai to Moses. In, in the, in, we, we can read about that all throughout um, Exodus and Leviticus. How they were to worship in the tabernacle with the ark. And uh, this is really what... Um, David wants stability. He wants a place. Uh, and this is, if you remember a bit of um, Old Testament or, or David's life, about how the ark was, was not, it, it moved about. Um, Saul, in a sense, a, Saul um, uh, sent the, the ark forward for battle, kind of a good luck charm. Lost it to the Philistines. And then uh, during that time when the Philistines had it, um, they put it in the Temple of Dagon, and, which is almost a, a hilarious um, uh, narrative about how their god fell down and, 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 in a sense, almost prostrate before the ark, which the ark was not, um, it was not an idol like you know, the other gods. It, it was just um, literally, ark means box. In Hebrew, it literally means box. That's, that's what it was. it was. It was a box. It was an ornate box. It was used to cover the, to, um, to contain the, the 
the um, Old Testament law, the, the, the tablets, the, the covenant. That's why it's called the Ark of the Covenant, the covenant given through Moses of, of the, the laws and statutes for Israel, which they were supposed to follow. It also um, contained Aaron's staff, which budded. Yeah, on top of it was the mercy seat, through which uh, um, uh, blood of the sacrifice was offer, offered on, on um, Yom Kippur, the, the Day of Atonement, once a year, um, when the priest would come into the Holy of Holies, and, and there he would offer that sacrifice. And that, that was the place where um, they, in a sense, met with God. It was um, God's way of, of condescending towards the people so that they would have something tangible, something physical, to a place to worship him and ways to worship him. Yet it was not an idol. It was just a representation. But nonetheless, this was a, a, a key um, sense of Israel's identity. The ark. It was where wherever the ark went, that was the center of worship. And there was um, there was statutes about how it would be um, carried. And so David's uh, right here in these first five verses. He he desires that there would be some sort of stability that that ark would that he would build a house for the Lord, that there would be a dwelling place for the Lord, that there would be a center of worship. And, and he, he's really looking for, um, to construct the temple, to have um, not only the temple, but a, a capital for Israel, a, a center of worship, a, a center where um, they would have this, this national identity to this place. And, and in the ancient Near East, a, a nation and its gods were inseparable. And it was part of their, their identity as a people. And so um, there's a lot of, um, I guess, overlap and integration between uh, the capital, the place, um, the political um, center, and the religious center of worship. And this is David's desire. His desire in these first five verses, it's evidenced by his hardships, by his hardships. It says, verse 1, Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured. All the hardships he endured in establishing his throne from the time um, when he, he knew he was, he was picked out uh, uh, ever since uh, Samuel had anointed him. And he knew he was, he was set aside, but then all, even from the time of uh, uh, his battle with Goliath, and then from then on, his, his battles his, 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 with uh, Saul, and then the Philistines, his hardship after hardship, after trial, after challenge, after um, people coming after him, and not just the Philistines, but Saul and his men. He had hardships in establishing his throne, which he knew he was, God had appointed him. But he also had hardships in establishing um, the kingdom. Establishing the kingdom. Turn with me for a moment to 2 Samuel 5. And we'll be going back to some of these... Um, these places, these, um, the historical narrative in 2 Samuel and Chronicles and Kings. But 2 Samuel 5, we see this. It says this, <clears throat> when he was anointed, then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, or Hebron, um, behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he ran, reigned 40 years 
At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. And then we get into this narrative of how he establishes Jerusalem. He says this, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And he, he became greater and greater. He built the stronghold. And from that point on, there, and there's something here because um, we can go back to Genesis. And, and um, we read about um, Abraham's account uh, with uh, Melchizedek. Melchizedek, this mysterious figure, which his, his um, name literally in Hebrew means king of righteousness. And he was king of Salem which is uh, shalom, uh, peace, king of peace. King of Salem, uh, Jerusalem, literally means city of peace. City of peace, um, ir shalom, so city of peace. And it's kind of foreshadowing that this would be the national center. And I think David knew that. And it's, but there's also... Uh, strategic, uh, the geography of, Je of Jerusalem was strategic. And that's why the Jebusites said, they taunted him, you will not come in here. Nevertheless, he, David had picked it out. He, he knew, um, but he had picked out, this will be the capital. And he, he comes to um, establish his throne, establish the capital, and he, he, in a sense, knew all along, this is where the temple would be, this would be the center of Jerusalem, this would be the center of the nation, the center of worship. One commentator, he writes this, he says, um, talking about David's hardships in the verse 1 of Psalm 132, he says, this seems to be inclusive from the times of being pursued by Saul. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 18 to 26, through God's judgment, because David numbered the people in 2 Samuel 24. So he says, all the way from 1 Samuel 18 to 2 Samuel 24, all the hardships that David endured throughout his whole life. And he goes on and says, perhaps it focuses on David's greatest affliction, which came from not having the ark in Jerusalem. So remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured. So we see his desire for a place of worship evidenced by his hardships that he endured just to establish his throne, to establish his kingdom, and to do it for the Lord. We also see his desire for a place of worship evidenced by his vows. Verse 2, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. And this, this vow is it's not recorded elsewhere in Scripture, but we can find uh, the circumstances um, surrounding it in a... Uh, 1 Chronicles 13. So turn with me there, 1 Chronicles 13. I want you to see this. Um, it, it, understanding um, many of these psalms, um, and it's particularly the psalms of David, it means understanding his life. And, and there's, there's a sense where um, context is so important in interpretation. It's a... Um, just in interpreting the Bible, uh, you know, they say there's a quaint saying like uh, um, there's three rules, context, context, context. Just like um, the rules for uh, a business, location, 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 though that's not exactly true anymore. But context is important. First Corinthians 13, we, we read this. David consulted with the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, with every leader. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you and from the Lord our God, let us send abroad to our brothers who remain in all the lands of Israel, as well as to the priests and Levites in the cities that have pasture lands, that they may be gathered to us. 
Then let us bring again the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. All the assembly agreed to do so, for the king, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So David assembled all Israel from the Nile of Egypt to Libohemath to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. And David and all Israel went up to Bala, that is, to Kiriath-Jerim, that belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord, who sits enthroned above the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ahio were driving the cart. And David and all Israel were celebrating before the God with all their might, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. And when they came to the threshing floor of, of Kaidan, Uzzah put out his hand to take hold of the ark, for the ox, oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. God that day, and he said, how can I bring the ark of God home to me? So David did not take the ark home into the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of God remained with the household of Obed-Edom in his house three months. And the Lord blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that he had. Then we read... Um, right after that, how he had um, uh, Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, all these gifts to help um, uh, establish him as king over Israel because uh, through the Lord that um, these gifts of, of material possessions and David establishes himself. And then later on in, in uh in verse 15 or chapter 15 we we see David um, builds houses for himself for himself and then he prepared to a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it and then David said that no one but the levites may carry the ark of God for the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark of God of the Lord and to minister to him forever and so that that was the problem why why um, Uzzah reached out his hand they they had it on a cart they should not have had it on a cart. Only the Levites were to carry it. But nonetheless, um, David decides to um, right his wrongs and, and have it carried. And so they, they, they reset to carry it back. And they're carrying it, it back and, and then um, to place it um, into the city of David. And at the, end of, um, at the end of chapter 15, we see... This is verse 28. So all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouting to the sound of the horn, trumpets, and cymbals and made loud music on harps and lyres. And as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came to the city of David, Michael, the uh, daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw David dancing and celebrating. She despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of God and set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings for before God and when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings he blessed the people in the name of the Lord and he sets it up he sets it up in in Jerusalem sets it up and they they worship him they worship God there and this is his desire his desire uh, to find this place to, to finally have a place for not only the ark, but a center of worship for the people. Uh, uh, in a sense, a, a home. Derek Kidner, in his commentary on the Psalms, he writes this. He says, this is a unique glimpse of David's motive in bringing the ark to Jerusalem. He is shown to be zealous for God's honor, conscience, conscious of his people's heritage. The mighty one of Jacob is a title last heard on Jacob's lips as he prophesied the destinies of the 12 tribes in Genesis 49 and pledged to see this matter through at all costs and with all speed. David, this was encompassed him all, probably ever since he was a shepherd boy, that, that God would be worshipped. And definitely since he had become king, you know, we, we, we think of um, 
what he says, his comments, um, when Goliath is taunting all the armies. And he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that taunts the, the armies of God? It's like David got it. He understood. He understood who God was. He longed for God to be worshipped and to be obeyed and to be followed. And he, he longed for, he desired for a place of worship for him. So we see his desire for a place of worship in verses 1 to 5. And then um, verses uh, 6 to 10, we see the people's desire for a place of worship. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jair. We Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. This, these verses, they, they center around the ark. And they say, behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. Um, uh, pointing that back to Bethlehem. Um, it, it's almost as if uh, pointing back to the, uh, the beginnings of David. But also, uh, they say, we found it in the fields of Jair. Kiriath Jerem, uh, more precisely, uh, it's another name for Kiriath Jerem. Um, where the ark was. And it says, say, verse 7, let us go to his dwelling place, let us worship at his footstool. It, it's not just um, tracing the, the, um, the movements of the ark, but also um, of David. So we see the, the people's desire for a place of worship evidenced first by their excitement and their actions to worship. Talk about their, their excitement of um, what's going on with the ark, what's going on with David, um, his exploits in establishing Jerusalem and bringing the ark up there, and then also evidenced by their petitions for worship. Evidenced by their petitions for worship that, um, to go up. And, and, and to the dwelling place, to their petitions for, um, in verses 8 to 10, Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. And the, the people, and David, they, they not only desire a place and a center of worship for the nation, but there's a sense where they desire uh, legitimacy and uh, vindication as a nation. As I said um, many times in the ancient Near East and all the um, countries around them, a, a nation and its God, um, the, the political aspects of a nation and the religious aspects were almost inseparable. If a nation failed in war or... or um, uh, Economically, um, it was tied to their worship and their God. And there is a sense that um, the people long for, right or wrong, they long for legitimacy as a nation, for vindication as a nation. And especially the true worshipers. Throughout Israel's history, there was idolatry. There was um, uh, religious uh, treachery. There was um, sinfulness. But there is always a remnant of true believers who long for um, the kingdom to be established. And this is, in a sense, who is speaking. We see this by the, the plural pronouns, we and us, and the, the people speaking, and then speaking to the Lord. You see their excitement and their actions to worship. Um, the people are recounting the movements of the ark from the time of David. We also see their... Um, Petitions to worship. There are petitions for worship. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy for the sake of your servant David. Do not turn away the face of your anointed one. They petition for a place of worship in verse 8, for the preparations and performance of worship. The, let your priests be clothed with righteousness. 
There's a sense, even as, as Moses lists all the um, regulations for worship in Leviticus, uh, uh, that the, the priests and, and their ritual cleansing, that they were, in a sense, to prepare themselves for worship. And not just externally, but their heart and their mind to take it seriously. And, and you know, the, the psalmist writes, let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Not, not just only being um, properly clothed, but that fully clothed with righteousness. And this, this can even foreshadow um, what the New Testament would almost say about being clothed in righteousness. Covered in righteousness uh, as um, almost a, the great exchange of, of um, you know, our, our garments, taking off the old man, putting on the new. Uh, those, the, the parable of the wedding garments that Jesus tells, of being clothed in righteousness. And let your saints shout for joy. Uh, they, would, they would be exuberant. Um, enthusiastic about worship. It, it wouldn't be humdrum. It wouldn't be going through the motions. It, it wouldn't be um, just uh, perfunctory worship. But they would shout for joy. And then the petitions for the promise of worship. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The face of your anointed one. We, we see, you know, for the sake of your servant David and all his desires and, and his kingship and his throne and his rule. But also, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. In a sense, talking about David, but um, more so also foreshadowing a greater David of Christ. Uh, uh, this term anointed one or my anointed the, the term in Hebrew is Mashiach, which we transliterate as Messiah. That's what Christ is known as, the anointed one. This is what it looks forward to, the, the true and greater David. So we see the people's desire for a place of worship evidenced by their excitement and their actions to worship in verse 6 and 7, and then their petitions for worship, verses 8 to 10, that they, they long for not only worship, but for David's throne, for a true king, for legitimacy. James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary on the Psalms, he writes this, The first half of the Psalm, verses 1 to 9, is about David's oath in which he promised to bring the ark to Jerusalem. The second half, verses 11 to 18, records God's corresponding oath in regard to David, promising him an everlasting dynasty. In the second half, the ideas of the first half are repeated, but they are heightened as God characteristically promises to do more than his people either ask or ex expect. In this way, Psalm 132 is an anticipation of Ephesians 3, 20 to 21, which says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. It's in a sense uh, that same attitude that, that God is able to do far more than whatever we ask or think. The the, the, the people, um, they probably just saw David and they're just establish our nation or our well-being so that we can follow the laws. And, you know, and we're talking about the faithful people here, the faithful worshipers, the faithful pilgrims um, as they would go up to worship on, during these times of feast to Jerusalem and reciting this psalm. For the most part, they, they, they were a bit short-sighted. They didn't see the the, the greater picture. And yet, prophetically, we see the psalmist write this in, in verse, um, verses 11 to 18. God's promise and provision for a place of worship. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne if your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them. Their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. 
He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. We see this is primarily talking about the throne of David, about God's covenant to David. We, we see his covenant promises to David reaffirmed, his provision for Zion reaffirmed, and his promises for a king reaffirmed. This is pointing to um, a greater reality, that, that God would not only establish uh, Jerusalem, even for short periods of time during David's uh, reign and Solomon's, and, and there's those short glimpses of hope in the times of, of Hezekiah and Josiah, those short moments uh, or, or um, times when they had peace and there was worship. But this is pointing to something even greater God's covenant with uh, David. Turn with me to 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7. And this is where we see um, we see his promises to David, his promises for a son, for um, what Jesus called the, the root and the branch of David. 2 Samuel 7 and verses 11. <clears throat> Verse 11 to 16. Or actually 10. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son." When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. It's the words that God spoke through Nathan the prophet to David, saying that his kingdom will be established forever. His throne will be established forever. We know the line of David. We know um, uh, all the way to, uh, in fact, to Jesus. It, it was uh, riddled with, uh, with sin and iniquity and failure. But that points forward to the true and reigning king, the ultimate king in Jesus. And we, we see in this covenant, his, his promises, his, his provision for Zion reaffirmed. One commentator, he writes this, he says, This section looks forward prophetically to the day that Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham, will be installed by God on the throne of David in the city of God to rule and bring peace on earth, and especially Israel. And there's all these, these psalms, these messianic psalms, like Psalm 2 and Psalm 89, Psalm 110, that speak of, of Christ ruling and reigning, Psalm 24. These promises, foreshadowing a, a true king, which David um, certainly did not fulfill. Though he, he was a man after God's own heart, and he did desire a place. And God shows his promise 
and his provision for that place of worship in uh, Psalm 132 and verse 13. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. You know, we, um, one of the key indicators of, um, and, and proofs of premillennialism that there will be a millennial reign of, the King Jesus, of King Jesus on earth is the Davidic covenant. That God had made a covenant, an everlasting covenant with David, that he will rule. He will rule on earth. Uh, and, you know, we've, it was interesting because um, many decades ago, before um, World War II, uh, there was um, some theologians and, and pastors would, um, they would uh, go back and forth, the, the people that, did not believe in a millennial reign and those pre-millennials and they would argue about this. But then, um, you know, when Israel became a nation, it um, made everybody think a little bit harder. Um, but even uh, politically, uh, the things that happened in, um, in uh, the Middle East and um, in history, they're, they're not the... the uh, um, the real evidence for doctrine, we see it all throughout the Old Testament about this foreshadowing of an earthly reign of King Jesus, of, of the Messiah in, in Jerusalem. That there's something special about Jerusalem. There's something special about Israel. They, they, they couldn't be wiped out. Um, their, their longevity proves, um, proves prophecy. It proves the word of God. And so we, we see his provision in verses 13 to 16. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation. And her saints will shout for joy. And it's almost in verse 16, it's interesting because that's in a sense a... a reiteration or, or a rephrasing of verse 9 which says let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy but then here's this promise verse 16 her priests I will clothe with salvation true righteousness imputed to them and her saints will shout for joy not let but will this will be established this is a, a sure promise that will be established and then finally we see uh, God's promises for a king reaffirmed in verses 17 and 18 there I will make a horn to sprout for David I have prepared a lamp for my anointed his enemies I will clothe with shame but on him his crown will shine a horn to sprout for David all throughout the Old Testament we see this this picture of a horn we see it in the prophecies of Daniel um, of the beasts and the horns. The horns is an Old Testament um, uh, symbol of power. You, know, you think of the horn of a rhino or the horn of uh, uh, rams or goats or any, any animal. That, that is their, their strength is in that horn. And it says there, Jerusalem, Zion, I will make a horn to sprout for David. I've prepared a lamp for my anointed, my Mashiach, my Messiah. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Dr. Will Varner um, is probably one of the premier Old Testament scholars, and he's been to Israel so many times, he, he doesn't need a map. Um, he just goes about, he knows people by name. Um, he writes this in his devotional commentary on the Psalms, Awake, O Harp. And that's, that's something I, I would uh, recommend to you highly. It's a devotional commentary, just really brief, but to go through the Psalms, uh, uh, Awake, O Harp, by Dr. Will Varner. But he writes this um, in there concerning this psalm. He says, This psalm is the centerpiece of the Ascent Psalms. It follows closely the account of the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, 1-16. to 
David wanted a place for God to dwell and received an oath from the Lord that his descendants would rule on his throne forever. His descendants, however, were not faithful and were thus removed from the throne. But God had chosen David and Zion, so he thus promised to raise up a future descendant, the anointed one, the Messiah. Psalm 132 is a reminder that God's promise remains firm and is the basis upon which the future hope of Israel lies. When that chosen seed comes, and he has, the promise is that I will clothe his enemies with shame, but the crown on his head will be glorious. He goes on and quotes once again another commentary. In, that, in the era when the Psalter was edited, the inclusion of this psalm among the ascent psalms shows the editor's faith that someday God will renew the Davidic line, and he did. He did. Because we can fast forward and we can see um, Peter's a sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. We also see, uh, there's a sense that Stephen um, alludes to this as well in his, his um, defense in Acts 7, but um, we see it clearly here in Acts chapter 2 and verse 29 as Peter gets up and he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he's preaching to the, the, the Jews and the Israelites concerning Jesus. And he says this, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with, him, with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. And he's quoting from Psalm 16 there. He goes on and says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Once again, he's, he's quoting Psalm 110 there. Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And it's interesting, Jesus said that, he, he asked, you know, he confronts the Pharisees with that. He said, um, in a sense, uh, if, if the son of, um, how, how does, uh, if, this, if um, the Messiah is, is David's son, how can, why does David said, the Lord said to my Lord? You know, and it says, um, when Jesus um, confronts them, it says they, they didn't ask him any more questions. You know, there's, um, when I was on hospice, and I would go visit believers on their deathbed and uh, always try to encourage them and give them hope, point them towards heaven, help them in their trials. And there, there's a psalm which I often shared with people on their deathbeds or even other soldiers, as a, when I was a chaplain, those who were struggling in the midst of a severe trial, this psalm, and some of you may have, have it um, on posters or, or things around the house or, or, or placards or whatever. Um, some of you know this psalm, but Psalm 46. Psalm 46, and there, there's an interesting, some interesting phrases in this psalm. You know it as a, a psalm of, of comfort, a psalm of hope. Um, it, it's a place to go to in times of trial. Well, I want you to follow along with me as I read this psalm. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, there is a river whose streams Make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. 
There's hope there. But there's an interesting thing which I always drew out to people. And I always showed them. In the midst of that psalm in, in verse, uh, verse 4, it says this. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. There's a river that points forward to a couple places. There's one place in Ezekiel where it points to the river flowing out from underneath the throne of God, and, the, and that is the temple and the, the millennial kingdom. But it's even more clear in Revelation 21. And I, w- I want to close out with this. Turn to Revelation 21. And at the beginning it says this, Revelation 21, after you know, all the great tribulation and, and um, you know, Satan is thrown in, into the, the lake of fire after the final judgment, it says this, Revelation 21, the beginning, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he was, who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And then go down to chapter 22. In the beginning of chapter 22 it says this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of each of, of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirit of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. And then drop down to verse 16. It says this, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. There's a river. Flows out from the throne of the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star who fulfills all the covenants. The Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant in his own blood. At the end of the Bible, it says this, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. We have a true king, a righteous king, a perfect king who's coming to reign, who's coming to sit on the throne of David to establish his kingdom in righteousness where pure worship will happen. This is essentially what Psalm 132 is pointing towards. It speaks of Jerusalem. It speaks of the worship of the Israelites and, and during the time um, of Solomon and, and on. It speaks of David. Ultimately, it speaks of Jesus Christ. It speaks of the one true king, the holy king, the righteous king, the only king that can reign perfectly and forever, who we will one day worship forever, and we will see him face to face.
He is our hope, and that's what Psalm 132 is ultimately pointing us to. Hope of the true King, of King Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Psalms. We go about our lives in this sin-cursed world and struggling with our own sins and discouragement and failures and weaknesses. And it's, it's easy to um, get sidetracked, to get distracted, even to stumble and fall into sin. And in those times, we need hope. We need reminders. We thank you for these reminders of your word in the Psalms to point us to that time when all things will be made new and all things will be made right and we will see you. We will be your people. We will dwell with you. Lord, until that time, until that time you come to make all things new or until that time in which you call us home, help us to live faithfully in the here and now. Help us to honor you in what we think, say, and do. Help us to proclaim you to the lost, to call others to faith. We thank you for your grace. Be with us through this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.